Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is the week when we listen to one of the great classic sermons of the past or the present. And we come to you today in a little bit of a bittersweet mood, Dr. Smith and I, because we've just come from the funeral of our beloved colleague, Dr. Calvin Miller, who passed away just a few days ago. And we're going to listen today to one of Calvin Miller's sermons. It was a sermon that he preached on the last day of our Beeson Pastor School several years ago, a classic Calvin Miller sermon. What do you think, Dr. Smith? Yes, Dr. George, it is a bittersweet moment, uh, and knowing the atmosphere when he preached this sermon from 1 Kings 19.14, which is a continuation of the Elijah-Elisha saga, uh, I think that this sermon during the pastor school is paradigmatic of the kind of ministry Calvin Miller had when he was with pastors, namely to encourage those who were discouraged. You heard someone say today during the funeral that one of the things that stood out about Calvin Miller was that he was real. Mm. In this sermon, Calvin Miller is real. Self-disclosing, yes, but not allowing his personal experience to dictate to the text, but to be a servant of the text Mm. in order that he might identify with those who struggled alongside of him in ministry. He takes an incident in the life of Elisha, Elijah, uh, a moment of transition between the two great prophets, and the whole point is focused on that experience where Elisha burned the plow and roasted the oxen as a way of saying there's no going back, there's no turning back. Yeah, I'm in it for the long haul. It was his way of really disputing what Lyle Schaller had said about ministry. He quotes Lyle Schaller in saying that after five years of ministry, one will not have any significant problem. But Calvin Miller says after pastoring 20 years at the West Side Baptist Church in Omaha, Nebraska, he just flat out said, that is a lie. Yeah. And he talks about his own experience and relates it to the text. So uh, we hope this will be an encouragement to all of you. We offer it as a tribute to our friend, our colleague, who's now with the Lord, Dr. Calvin A. Miller. Listen to this sermon from the Beeson Pastor School, Burning the Plow. Well, you know, and I know it's time to go home and this church back at home. Remember the church? And uh, it's just it's just kind of hard to want to go back sometimes and you feel like you want to build tabernacles and see if you get your annuity board stuff early and uh, just not go back home. But you know, uh, uh, the thing that always keeps me on track is just remembering Christ. And you know, I wouldn't want to work for anybody else, would you? I think about it. Really? Uh, I hope you don't work for your trustees. I tried that for a while. I didn't like them too good. Uh, work, work for the Lord. I want to just pick up where we left off yesterday in this passage with the 14th verse of the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. Um, Elijah obviously is is pretty depressed. Lord, he said, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. But the Israelites have broken down your altars. They've rejected your covenants. Deacons don't treat me very well. I'm the only one left, Lord. Really cares. And now... 
They're trying to kill me too. You ever feel like that? Oh, Lord, if I could just run a little faster, I could outrun them just a little faster. Verse 18, God says, I've got about 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. Not everybody in this land is an idolater. Never be too pessimistic, by the way, about the state of the church, because just when you think there's not a Christian in your church, you'll discover one. And it's a wonderful feeling. Verse 19, Elijah went from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. He's a farmer. Elijah now has something to do. His mood is a little better. He's out from under the broom tree. He went up to Elisha, threw his cloak around him, and Elisha left his oxen and ran after Elijah. The symbolism of the mantle from an old prophet who's made his reputation on Mount Carmel, now throwing that great cloak around the uh, shoulders of the next man in line. Elijah says, let me kiss my father, bid my mother goodbye, and then I will come back. Go, Elijah said, what have I done to you? So Elijah, Elisha left him, went back, took his yoke of oxen, and I love this, the finality of it, he slaughtered them. He burned his plowing equipment and roasted the meat. You can't do that and go back to farming. It's all over. He's made a pretty definitive statement. I'm not going back. And uh, he gave the, gave the meat to the people. They all ate. And he's out of the farming business and he went to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Now it amazes me the strength of this, the, the concept of the call here. Because can I be real honest, especially when I was a young man, I, I, I always asked God to let me make a lot of money. He never did answer the prayer. But I thought if I could only make a lot of money, I could tell people how I really felt. I'd be set free. Uh, but I'm, I'm not confident that that's what does it. You have to just roast your oxen and, and do that because you don't really know. And believe it or not, most of us ministers, 62% of all ministers, men ministers at least, were raised by a, a mother who was either the dominant parent or the only parent. I suspect we're kind of a heart's cry, most of us looking for a little understanding all our lives. It's okay. It's okay. I, uh, I love that little cartoon that shows that fellow lying down, uh, or sort of Ziggy lying down in front of his psychiatrist on a, on a couch, and the psychiatrist is saying to Ziggy, Ziggy, I wouldn't worry about low self-esteem. It's common to all losers. I felt like that so much. I felt like sometimes I just can't get it. But sometimes God will affirm his call in my life by putting someone really right there at just that moment that I need him. I, uh, uh, we needed a, uh, a, a new youth director, actually an associate pastor in our church at one occasion. And I didn't know who we were going to get. But a friend of mine called me on the phone and said, you know, Calvin, I know just the guy that you need to hire. I said, why? What makes him so right? He said, well, he's, he's strong everywhere you're weak. I don't like to hear where I'm weak, but he knew them all. He said, you know, you really can't tie your shoes, and you're really not a very organized person, and you're all heart, but you don't have much administration about you. Um, you really do need this guy. He's, he's a wonderful guy. Um, he would compliment your ministry, and I said, well, give me his name. He said, his name's Randy. I said, I'll call him, and, and, and we'll talk. I called Randy, and, and by the way, the last thing he said was, I need to tell you before you call him that he's little. I said, what do you mean, little? He said, he's just, just little. 
I said, okay. I called Randy on the phone and uh, I said, Randy, I, we're looking for a new, you, you come highly recommended. I would like to meet you in Kansas City. He was from Dallas, I was from Omaha. But you know, we pastors, we want to have our first meeting with potential staff in a foreign city just in case uh, our people like the new staff potential, but we really don't. So we met in Kansas City. I will never forget that standing out there waiting for them to get off and Randy got off the airplane. He was very little. That was the thing I saw first. He came off in a group of children. I nearly missed it. He wasn't even five foot tall. And he, he got over. He, we got together. We went, sat down, had a Coke. And boy, my first five minutes with him, I kept thinking, golly, he really is little. Now, I didn't say that to him. I just said, he really is little. But you know, the more I talked to him, the more I began to understand he just grew and grew and grew during that lunch hour. Finally, when I left, he looked pretty good size for me. I went back to the deacons. I said, I found the guy. I want to fly in Omaha. And I said, I need to tell you something. They said, what? I need to tell you. He's little. They said, what What can that mean, little? I said, just remember that I, I told you he's little, but he's a great guy. Well, Randy came up with his wife. I never will forget both of them getting off the plane. If he was little, she was microscopic. I've never seen such little people. We took him over to the place where they were to stay. And uh, they got, uh, uh, they actually, this is a true story. Most of my stories have an element of truth, but this one's totally true. <laughs> they put him... They, 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 they actually slept on the same single bed. Uh, I mean, they were just little. The deacon said to me, Pastor, are you sure about this? I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. They said, little. I said, I understand that. Um, you know, it amazed me. Randy preached for us. He came to be. He, he, he just got bigger in our estimation. Nonetheless, they were little. And actually, after they had their first baby, they still all three weighed less than our education director. But he got busy in the church, and he was busy, and um, we had a good time together. And then one day, I don't know, ten years down the pike, my education director resigned. I know you guys aren't going to understand this, and you dolls who preach out here. I can tell you, it was just really hard because our education director was real popular. And people came by my office to say, Pastor, how come Brother Dick is leaving the church? You must be hard to work with. Oh, I said, no, I'm easy to work with. I'm lovable. No, they said, if you were lovable and easy to work with, Brother Dick wouldn't be leaving. He's a true man of God. Why is he leaving the church? You know, I, I went around. I, I actually had people take me out to lunch. I don't know if you've had this experience. They take you out to lunch to tell you what a rotten guy you are. It's just hard to sit there and eat and really enjoy it. And they just ran me down. And they were finally taking numbers. It was a totally unpopular period of my life. And two weeks later, our music director resigned. Oh man, did I really catch it. Now the whole mob is swarming against me. And uh, everybody is convinced that it's my fault and all these people are leaving. I've been pastor of the church 20 years. I like that Lyle Schaller doctrine that said, if you can live in the ministry for 20 years or for five years, he says if you can live through it five years, you'll never have a significant problem again. That's a lie. I had a terrible problem. I didn't know what to do. I just, I didn't know where to go. I, uh, uh, but... I was walking down a hall one day just feeling terribly, 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 terribly low. Nobody had said one nice thing to me. I was considering Buddhism. I was tired of the whole church. And as I'm walking down that dark hallway, this little old arm reaches up and puts itself high on my shoulder. And I look down and there's my little friend, Randy. And he said to me, Calvin, I know you're hurting, but as far as I can see, none of this is your fault. Ministry is a tough thing. 
And you have to build that kind of network that says, hey, I put it all back there. I burned the plow. I roasted the oxen. I'm in business for Jesus. And I may make it with a few good friends and the Lord on my side. Let me read you the conclusion of this story. It's over in 2 Kings 2 verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. Elijah, Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. You get those moments, those feelings of impending glory. The fire is about to burn. The wind is about to blow. Don't leave now. Elijah said, uh-uh, I'm going with you. Verse 3, and the company of the prophets came out to Bethel and they said to Elisha, do you know that your master is going to be taken from you today? Yeah, I know, said Elisha. Don't speak of it. Verse 5, the company of prophets at Jericho got up to Elisha and said, Hey, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master today? Oh, yes, I know. Don't speak of it. Verse 8, Elijah took the cloak with him, rolled it up at Jordan River. Now he strikes the water. The water divides the right end to the left, and two of them crossed over on dry ground. I love this passage. Here's the same mantle. He wrapped it around the shoulders of a young prophet and said, God's going to use you. Now he takes that old mantle and wraps it up like a pillowcase and smacks the Jordan River and it rolls up to the right hand and left and they walk to the Jordan like Israel walked to the Red Sea on dry land. It's a heady moment. And when they had crossed, Elisha said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken? Elijah said, Elisha said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. If anybody ever hungered after God in the Old Testament, it must have been Elijah, but all of a sudden here's this upstart who's felt the mantle on his shoulders and burned his oxen, or burned his plow, roasted his oxen, and now he's asking for a double portion. You have asked a difficult thing, but if you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours, otherwise not. I, I can't uh, stop right now. Let me just read these next four verses. As they're walking along, talking, you know something? There is nothing like being in the presence of another believer when the fire is about to fall. That sense of impending. I don't know what there is about walking with Christ Jesus, but it seems to me that my whole life was marked by a spirit of impending. I always believed that the next Sunday and the next week and the next day and maybe the next moment, the fire would fall. Isn't that a good way to serve? Maybe it didn't always happen, but somehow I was convinced it was about to happen. They're walking along, and suddenly there's a chariot of fire. And I like thinking that Elijah, who could see so far in the future, saw William Blake and heard him say those wonderful words after which a movie would be entitled, Bring me my bow of purest gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my harp, old clouds unfold. Bring me my chariots of fire. And the chariot came in a whirlwind. Elijah saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them. And then, fluttering down out of heaven, an old mantle that's now split a river and fallen on his shoulders, he picks up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah, goes back, stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it and said, Where now is the God of Elijah? And he struck the water and it divided to the right hand 
and to the left. And he crossed over. To begin to understand, to begin to understand that the God we serve is not only impending, he is so full of delicious mystery, we shall never probe his debts. I preached down in Adelaide, Australia a couple years ago, and I uh, gave an invitation in a church down there, and about 13 or 14 people came forward, and they were standing all the way across the front of the church, and I went down and began to pray with them all the way across the front of the church. And what about the second lady there? I took her hand and was going to pray with her, and I got the feeling that she was about to faint. I tell you, folks, I, I like revival posters that say, predictable, safe, have me for a revival. I'd, I'd seen this kind of thing on cable television. I had no need to slay anybody in the spirit. Besides, I'm a little different than Benny Hinn. I don't have any catchers. And the floor was concrete. And uh, when I sensed that she was about to fall, I, I held her hand real hard. I, I prayed and, it, and held her until finally I was through praying. It seemed like she was pretty stable. And so I thought, well, this won't ruin my reputation today. And I let her go. Went to the next person and she just fell over hard. I mean, she her, her head hit the floor like a rifle shot. And she laid there honestly for 20 minutes. I prayed that she was just slain in the spirit and not forever slain. I could see my name in the Adelaide paper, but mostly all, I could see the letters that would go back to the seminary saying, you know, you're a preaching guy is over here slaying people in the spirit. You know, I left <laughs> service that day. And I had all these mixed emotions. Oh gosh, you know, I don't know what people bring to church with them. I didn't, I, I don't do that kind of thing. Don't do it very well and I can't live very comfortably when it's done. But on the way out of church, my wife said to me, well, she said, are we ready for a truck and a tent? <laughs> I said, I, I don't know. But I, I said, honey, you know, I'd rather go to a church where sometimes things happen than, that you can't explain than to always go to churches where you can explain everything that happens. I don't know what all they brought with them. I only know that there are certain moments when the mystery of God burns and the fire and the passion are there. And I'm glad that somewhere way back there as a 19-year-old guy, I agreed to burn the plow and roast the oxen. And every day I would look up and fain see the mantle of God if I could get it falling on my life. It makes it possible to go home from Beeson Divinity School and feel like there's life after a week like this. You know, I, um, I, I kind of believe that somehow each of you can help yourselves along, confess your calling to each other, live within the glory of that calling, and trust God to always make it happen. I love the story that William Wyler tells when he was filming Ben-Hur, one of my favorite movies, Ben-Hur. I love the old movies, by the way. People just, they didn't, talk bad and go to bed all the time. They just, you know, did stories. But I love Ben-Hur. I love that chariot race where those horses, three of them abreast, are running around there and, and old Ben-Hur is flying out of that chariot and that's a glorious scene. But when they were filming, by the way, they said they filmed like six hours a chariot for a three-minute time on film, so you're getting the best shot of this thing. But they said that that, uh, that Char Carlton Heston, he became real upset because he said, there's nobody in the world that can ride in this chariot and win this race. He said, I can't stay in the chariot, let alone win the race. And William Wyler said to him, your job is to stay in the chariot. And my job as director is to see that you win the race. I love the calling that's mine in Christ. And I love the idea that I'm in this for the long haul and I, I'm convinced that 
that when the mantle falls, somehow we help each other remember that we are called. My son is at Oxford. Stopped back through there recently to see him, of course, and uh, went by New New College, Oxford, and thought about it just a little bit. New College, I don't know if you know New College or not. It's called New College in 1638 when it was built. And so it's not as new as it used to be. But uh, it was new in 1638, and they called it New College. And uh, it's kind of tucked in on the backside of Modlin College and Addison's Walk, and it's a wonderful college to kind of look across the green lawn and, and see there. But in 1638 it was built. Uh, only about a century later, the trustees in 1751 noticed that the great oak beams that held the roof up in New, in New College were terribly rotten and about to decay. And they did an interesting thing. They sat down and wrote a letter, the, the trustees in 1751, sat down and wrote a letter to the college trustees of 1844 and put the letter on file for a hundred years. And then they went out to a place called Oaks, New Oaks Grove and they planted a whole grove of oak saplings. And the trees grew for a hundred years. And the college in 1844, the trustees opened a letter that said, we planted the trees because we know you're having a problem with the roof. They said, harvest trees, replace beans. I love the idea that we're in this thing to bring each other support and help and we're in it for the long haul and the long haul, I believe, means that we give it to God and we don't ask for it back. But it, it, it is not a kind of painful terminus. I believe it is fraught with impending. The best part of my life in Jesus has not happened yet. I've been saved been sanctified, I'm being sanctified across all these years, but I guarantee you God has tucked something so marvelous out their head that the best part of my life in Christ is about to happen, and someday the double portion will be fully mine. Those who read this passage and know it say that Elijah got everything he asked for, and that if you compare the Bible verse by verse, there are twice as many verses written about Elisha as Elijah. And twice as many miracles accorded to Elisha than Elijah. To ask for a double portion of God's spirit and a hungering soul, I believe, is always the will of God. I pray that will be yours. And that the words of William Blake will describe your future. Bring me my bow of purest gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my harp, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariots of fire. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.